Hello everybody, before we get going, this is just a reminder that through the end of the month of November, all grants to the Lexrex Institute will be matched by one of our donors who has generously offered to do that. So if you have any inclination, please make a donation before November ends and it will be matched. You can do that by visiting lexrex.org donate. That's L-E-X-R-E-X dot org slash donate. Thanks and enjoy the show. Look at these three words written larger than the rest with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we the people. Welcome to the LexRex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Truschel. And I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush. And today we're joined by a third person. Alex, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Alex. I am Alex's assistant. Uh, that's not going to be confusing at all for people that are only listening. So today we're going to be discussing yet another episode in our Rome series. And Alex is sort of our resident expert on Rome, so he's here to talk to us about that. Well, that's a little sad, considering I'm not an expert in anything, but uh, we'll see. I guess I do enjoy the period more than most people, and I've studied it for quite a bit. It's about all I can say, though, so yeah, I'll give it a whirl. Yeah, so this, for listeners who remember, it's actually been a few weeks now since we did the first episode in what we're calling the fall of Rome. Get it? Because it's fall, and we're talking about Rome. But this will be... Our second episode of probably that. probably three in total. Yeah, I don't really like it either, but I did come up with it, so I have only myself to blame. Sure. Last time we talked about... <laughs> mm. Th- thank you. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, somebody likes it, David. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Last time around, we talked about Roman systems of voting. This time we're going to start discussing some of the systemic and constitutional flaws that led to the collapse of the Republic and the rise of the Empire. Not the one okay, from Star so Wars, let's but... let's play our intro. Yeah. Okay. That, that good get old, you in the mood? Yeah, that good old Roman music. Yeah, I thought those were the wrong Italians, but that's okay. I'll go with it. They, they are, in fact, Perhaps the wrong Perhaps more Italians. Neapolitan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here you go. So I guess our official music is just both of those now for this series. Yeah. <laughs> What's that sure, second one from Monty Python? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> what? No, that's from Ben Hur. Oh, that's oh, ben I feel, yeah. feel kind of sheepish now. <laughs> yeah, it's the most Roman thing I could think of, other than maybe Respighi, but this seemed to work you know, better. Fair enough. So, anyway, today we're going to be talking about the Gracchi brothers, Tiberius and Gaius. And, you know, I think on a previous episode, Alexander referred to Tiberius Gracchus as a proto-communist. We'll talk about whether that's completely accurate or not. In a Was bit. it a slur? Was it accurate? <laughs> that's the question we'll be answering today, right? Yeah. But one way or, or another... Or was it both? <laughs> Maybe, maybe so. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> one way or another, though, the Gracchi brothers definitely played a major role in sort of the beginning of the end, and so we'll be we'll be getting into that today. Mm-hmm. So, time period wise, we're talking about like the one thirties and one twenties BC, mm-hmm. which is about eighty years before the civil war that uh, b- between Julius Caesar and, and Pompey that ended up kind of really being the the final death of the Republic. So not quite a century prior to that, but already seeing the beginning of the end. So a hundred years before the dictatorship of Caesar 
results in empire, right? Before Augustus, yeah. Just about, yeah. Just no, I, think, about. I think almost exactly 100 before years before the dark Augustus times. Instead of Julius, but yeah. Yeah, before the dark times, before the <laughs> empire. And by the way, I've not reviewed for this at all. I, I've been very busy doing, a work with my, uh, doing work with my colleague John Eastman on behalf of uh, David Eastman, no relation to John Eastman, by the way, who hmm. is in an Alaska state representative who's being accused of being a member of an organization that plots the violent overthrow of the government, which is kind of apropos for what we're discussing right now. He's yeah. not a member of any <laughs> such organization. Uh, it's, it's on account of his, or, his membership in Oath Keepers, who are, of course, present on January 6th, 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people are trying to get him removed from office for that. Kind of an old McCarthyist law. We talked about those in our very first episode, some California laws. Apparently Alaska's got them, too. <laughs> so they're currently trying to remove him from office, and that's occupied the bulk of my time, but I'm here to talk about Rome anyway. So Alex is going to be filling in as far as preparation is concerned. Oh, good. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, very exciting topic to, to begin things. We're going to be talking about land reform law in Rome. That was always big in Rome, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It, it kind of was. You know, I, I, was, <laughs> I was reading some secondary literature about this issue couple days ago and um supposed to say the name david i i have forgotten the name unfortunately <laughs> i didn't write it down but wikipedia no <laughs> it was not <laughs> wikipedia but someone remarking that it seems gladiator maybe that it, it took <laughs> i don't think they talked about land reform in that movie but oh really? someone talking about it, it until seemingly too late Actually, you know, Gaius Crocus. Mm-hmm. No one seems to have realized that there was land outside of Italy that they could use, uh, rather than just trying to endlessly subdivide what is ultimately a pretty small amount of land. But, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Alex, mm. do you want to tell us a bit about the Lex Agraria? Uh, no, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can tell you a little bit. Okay, it, it's um, it's a land reform law yeah. went into effect in 133 BC. I think the Lex Agraria refers to just a number of uh, agrarian laws. The one specifically uh, that we're talking about now under Tiberius, though, would have been to sort of break up and parcel out public lo- uh, land that was owned by the state of Rome. Now, that Roman state owned quite a, lar- a large uh, swath of land ba- uh, based on conquest in Italy before that. That was basically allo- allowed to be used by tenant farmers of the kind that the Roman army uh, was basically made up of. The Roman army was divided and uh, had a requirement for uh, property ownership and wealth So mm-hmm. because you basically had to own your, uh, buy your own um, weapons. So during the previous century before Tiberius Gracchus came along, Rome was obviously going around beating the snot out of everyone, everyone around them, getting really, really big really fast. And while that was happening, the people that were conscripted into the army couldn't go, couldn't pay the debts on their land because you still had to give money to Rome Rome from the land because of course it's not your land you have to uh, pay for that. If you can't do that because you're off fighting somewhere and you're not being paid until the end of your service, then the debt gets too high. And uh, what tended to happen is that the nobles and the um, patricians would come in, pay the debt themselves in exchange for getting the land and kicking the families of the uh, soldiers off the land. So there was. Gee, that that sounds all too familiar, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, so even down to the the state owning a bunch of land. For those of us out in the West, we've heard of that before, right? I think more than half of our state, California, is owned by the federal government. Yep. 
And then if you uh, if you if you think of things like cowboys, that's exactly why cowboys and Indians sort of had those that big ruckus of uh, like Wyatt Earp, all that stuff. That's exactly what's going on there. Is that people were using public land because it wasn't their land. They started fighting over it to use more. Yeah. Well, and then and even you know of basically elites seizing lands that someone's unable to pay for. I mean, that has shades of our Great Depression yes. uh, mm-hmm. when the property taxes came due on land and people weren't able to pay it. Although here it's people, they can script it into the army. So that seems to be a little <laughs> bit more egregious in my view. Yeah. That's yeah. the only reason they're not able maybe, to, maybe the land to make an income is they're serving the state in a different capacity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that that's sort of the situation we're looking at when we talk about the Gracchi coming in. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Is that, is that, that's what the Lex Agraria intended to reform. Right. That's right? what his, his uh, uh, reforms were intended to reform, which is why when I, we generally talk about the Gracchi and whether or not he's a proto-communist or if it's all his fault, I think the short answer is, uh, yeah, but don't only blame him. And the long answer is, <laughs> yes, but blame other people too. Um, yeah. Okay. So yeah. It, it's that point that I think, you know, calls for maybe a bit of nuance rather yeah. than just blaming Tiberius because, you know, an element of the legal landscape was that there were supposed to be limits on how much of that public land you could actually make use of. Yes. It was about 300 acres in total. And because of the processes that Alex was describing, a lot of wealthy landowning families ended up holding a good bit more than that. But enforcement against them was usually, you know, non-existent. And much like us, the Romans recognized a kind of adverse possession principle. So if you'd been improving Mm -hmm. the land, if you'd been working it and no one had tried to assert ownership rights against you, you know, you're, you're at least owed compensation for being forced to, to give it up. Yeah. So initially, Tiberius Crocus comes in and he says, all right, we'll form a land commission. We'll figure out who has too much. We'll pay them off. And who is we'll, this guy? Just so the audience knows. He, his official position, you know, his role in the government is as a tribune, which we, we talked about previously. The most important mm-hmm. thing to know about them is that they have veto powers and, you know, the whole Roman... And that they're elected by the people yeah. is the yeah. important yeah. thing, too. Because yeah. remember, they were appointed by the popular assembly. What did you call that? The um, Comet... Uh, oh, I something. forget. I've already forgotten the Latin. <laughs> I, I just call it Comet. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but they appointed by the people. Right. Uh, so he's he's not somebody who represents necessarily moneyed or landed interests, which makes sense given what he's advocating for. Mm-hmm. Uh, appointed as the Tribune, and as we mentioned, they had veto power, yes. right? So yeah. land reform sounds like it might be exceeding that. Is that fair to say? Well, as, as we've also talked about, a lot of the Roman system was pretty ad hoc, and it was you know assemblies in general have legislative powers, but there's all kinds of assemblies including the People's Assembly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as far as I'm aware, and may, Alex, you might know better than I do about this, I'm, you know, less of a Roman history buff than you are, for sure. sure. But I think just about anybody could propose a law um, yeah. at the Assembly. So, okay, so... Um, I thought you had to be a member of the Assembly to, oppose, to propose a law. Yeah, but that just means you're a male citizen that can vote, right? I thought once you were a Tribune, you were legally no longer a part of that Assembly. I don't... I don't actually know the answer to that one. Okay, I, I don't know if they had well, separation of powers or not. I not guess really. The <laughs> here's, the I thing. Made, so. well, here's the thing, that, <laughs> though, is that uh, the assemblies are defined, the uh, offices are generally defined, but beyond that, they're pretty much all running off of tradition. So yeah. the tradition yeah. definitely well, that, that, would be that the tribunes should not be proposing laws. Whether or not it's illegal to do that, though, is probably subject to debate for them, which is why they would get into trouble, because... 
Mm-hmm. Well, and that, that's most constitutions. Most constitutions historically have been unwritten, uh, which yeah. means yeah. that they are essentially tradition. We've always done it this way. This is the way that it works. Obviously subject to confusion, subject to debate. I guess to ask my question more clearly, this is in excess of what tribunes have previously done. Yeah. Is that right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well in excess <laughs> of what previous tribunes have done. Yeah. Yeah. Of, d- of dubious legality. Mm-hmm. Yes. Certainly, okay. you know, the, the Romans had what they called the mos maiorum, which if you mm. know the, the English word mores, like social mores, that's the plural of the Latin word mos. It basically yep. just means way. So it's the way of the ancestors, basically. It's sort of, the, you know, the traditional way of doing things. This is definitely yeah. crossing that line. Yep. But as we'll see, everyone starts doing that. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of the goal. Yeah, well, and, and that's part of what I wanted to get at is yeah. the reason why the Gracchi end up being sort of the beginning of the end is it starts in almost anything goes mindset. Yeah. Yes, In definitely. Rome. Even if they were well-intentioned, even if what they were doing was appropriate in those circumstances. You got to always be very careful when you go against the de jure way of accomplishing things because you're opening Pandora's box. Other people will start doing it too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've seen that a lot in recent days, especially with a debate about people wanting to change the composition of the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. or impeach different justices of the Supreme Court. That's not necessarily a Pandora's box we want to open. Okay, so that's, we've set the scene. We've got a tribune of the people. He wants to propose land reform. What happens? Yeah. Well, so as I mentioned, initially he was proposing that this be done with compensation to the people who were using the land that was to be redistributed. Mm -hmm. When, in spite of that, there's opposition, he decides, you know, gloves come off, we're just going to take it. (laughs) And so that becomes sort of the next phase of the law. So he's a little bit of an accelerationist. Well, (laughs) sort of. I would actually blame more the other side for that because they did some political wheeling and dealing. And his response was, "Okay, we're going to take it, but we're going to do it legally because I have the power power to veto. And you pretty much have to have approval to do almost anything, like open markets so people can buy grain, things like that. And literally anything that Mm -hmm. um, people need an approval for, I can veto. So he says, I'm just going to veto everything until the Senate gives in and says we can vote on my bill and that because I know the people are behind me for it. So that sounds very modern, doesn't uh-huh. it? <laughs> so I'm just I'm yeah. basically getting... but, but it's but it's a different bill than he originally proposed, right? Because it doesn't give compensation yeah. to anybody whose land is being appropriated. That's what I'm referring well, that's to. Fair. So, you know, that yeah. that's sort of negotiation 101 is that, you know, you're kind of an an a-hole. <laughs> uh, if, if you if you start that's making true. your terms worse just because your opponent doesn't agree with you off the bat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know? And that that's why I'm calling him an accelerationist here. That That is something that we will see applied time and time yeah. again throughout history is people sort of cutting off their nose despite yeah. And th- yeah. Uh, but as far as the methods are concerned, I think you're right. I think he is acting within the law. Uh, mm-hmm. We know that tribunes have the ability to veto things. That's all he's doing. He's saying he's not going to approve any laws until they fix the thing that he wants to fix. Yeah, but talking about the mouse mayorum, that, that smashes it with a hammer. Um, so the, the traditional oh, yeah. way is essentially like you have a, a period for legislation to veto. If a tribune wants to do that, that's fine. But beyond that, he usually just sits there quietly and lets the mm-hmm. process run. The fact that Tiberius decided to do that, to use it for everything as opposed to just normal re- legislation, which is what they did to him. That's they, they vetoed his legislation when it was well, about didn't, to pass. Well, but didn't they have to pass, didn't they open markets with legislation? I mean, th- that's, maybe I'm a little bit confused here, but it sounds like he is just doing it with legislation. That's what I'm getting at. Because they had to use legislation to open markets. Yeah, yeah, but um, that sort of thing you, you'd usually just like allow go. Anything, any normal legislation, not like special things such as a land law or a new tax or things like that, you would just allow to occur because that's the normal processes of government. And that's the, that's so what he, That doesn't sound to me like it would violate the Mas Mayorum at all, though. 
because it's it's we, we know that tribunes have the authority to block legislation, right? right? Yeah, I, I think what, what I think what Alex is getting at is that there's you know this sort of again unwritten and traditional distinction between routine business and right. special business, right? And that's the the sort of the custom that he's spitting in the face. I thought the whole thing in Rome was they treated them the same way. They both required a vote. In in terms of the mechanics, I think that's true. Right. But in terms of you know the sort of unwritten rules, not so much. Right. So what were the additional unwritten requirements uh, for regular legislation? I guess. I think basically none. You know, everyone knows that we're going to go in here and we're going to say, you know, oh, let's open the market, and everyone's going to say, yes, let's open the market, and then we'll be done with it. Right. <laughs> As I mentioned, keeping the markets closed hurts people that you know aren't rich enough to grow their own food. So, like the poor people that are voting for the uh, land law. So that that really pushed. Well, I'm not talking about whether field. it was a good thing to do. You know, that's whether it was a good thing for him to do, I think, is a separate question from whether or not it was within his authority. I think I would have been on I think I would have been on the side of Gracchus on that sure. one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, to be fair, no one disputed that he could do it. Right. You know, and that, that's oh, I, I thought Alex was saying it went against the Mas Maori. Well, yes, but that's unwritten custom. It's not actually. Right. You know, I thought that was their constitution. I'm just trying to for for I'm trying to get down, you know, what were the rules, what was expected, yeah. what was going differently here. Well, that that's part of the problem is that there wasn't necessarily a clean and bright line between what are the rules and what does, you know, a good proper gentleman do. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And you know, at push came to shove, what are the rules, it, you know, turned out to be a tribune can veto almost literally anything that happens in the city of Rome. Yeah. But and that that wasn't was that new or was that not new? It was new for anyone to do it cuz like uh <laughs> sure sure that that's that's not what I'm asking. Yeah. Was that a new power or was that an old power? It's an old power. That that the yeah, law okay. itself the the literal law did, uh, never changed. It's what what people did with it. Okay. Right. Sure. Yeah. Using established systems and methods for a purpose that was not envisioned when they were created. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I would distinguish between that and changing established systems and methods. Okay. Yeah, the, 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 I think the issue is that the, the senatorial class tended to have a, a very sort of, um, I guess, fusty might be the right word, sort of uh, mentality about that kind well, of thing. And that's, that is the risk of an unwritten constitution, is yeah. that I think you risk muddying the lines between what is our law and what's just stuff that we've done. Right. Right. You know, it's the same power that he's exercising here in both instances. I think pretty undebatably. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's the same power to, to veto opening of a market and to veto, you know, I don't know, a new appropriations law or whatever it's going to be. Yes. I think, I think that's beyond question. But the mere fact that it hasn't been done that way, you get people who are of a more traditionalist mindset saying that makes it illegal to. Right. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because it was the establishment here also who reacted first with violence. It wasn't it wasn't Gra- uh, Gracchus, even though I agree that he was sort of a proto-communist and, and going about an answer to the to the legitimate problem that was his answer was bad. But it was the establishment who actually started the violence uh, when he came yeah. up for a re-election. And that fits with our experience too. You know, that's kind of the way things tend to go nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's the establishment is the one that doesn't like things to be mixed up too much yep. and they tend to rely on any kind of authority they can get they don't necessarily care if it's legal authority yeah yep. 
Well, we we had a bit of a spoiler uh, oh. <laughs> in that, Alex, in that this will break down into violence. But to uh, to carry things forward a bit, keep the story moving, we end up with sort of a um, tit-for-tat cycle of vetoes between Gracchus and another tribune who's sort of more aligned with the senators, yep. uh, Marcus Octavius. And so, you know, neither of them is backing down. And that's when another sort of unheard of comes into play, which is Tiberius Gracchus gets the, the plebeian assembly together and he says, you should vote to depose this other tribune, Octavius, because he, you know, he's supposed to represent your will as a tribune of the people. Mm-hmm. He's not doing it. So vote him out. And there's two tribunes at any given time. Ten. Right? It, it okay. started with two, and then at some point it expanded all the way up to ten. But yeah, so one point, of any ten can veto any legislation? At any time, yes. yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's why I can see why vetoing things like opening of the market would be a problem, uh-huh. especially if people know that you can do yeah. that going forward. Yeah. Yeah, that's... All right. Okay, so <laughs> now, deposing a tribune, is that something that's been done before? No. I don't think that's no. the first time that could be done. No, and as we talked about in the last episode about Rome, there was a religious quality to the office of tribune. That you know they were supposed to be sacrosanct. You weren't supposed to lay a hand on them during their term. Certainly not murdered. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we'll, okay. we'll get to that. So, like, moment. of all the things that's supposed to happen to a tribune, that's like probably the bottom. Yeah, of yeah. the list, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but spoilers uh, too. probably. <laughs> Probably shortly there. I'm just saying, you know, this this is the guy that you really don't want to get murdered because he's under the special protection of the right. gods. So let's, yeah. I'm not saying what's going to happen to him. Yeah. I'm just uh, speaking that. speaking of um, mixing <laughs> uh, understanding of what what uh, the law says is a power and isn't a power because a the te- technically this anything the assembly says and votes for goes. So in that sense, you can kick out kick out a tribune. Yeah. But on the other mm-hmm. sense sense, the gods might kill you to do it. So so in that sense you can't <laughs> do it. So this is really just a big, big clash of two different concepts of what uh, you're supposed to do in government, at least for the Romans. Yeah, they, they've got formally a legislative tyranny. Right. right? Yes. Legislature mm-hmm. can do whatever the heck they want. But also, you know, you read any ancient Roman philosophy. I mean, Cicero comes to mind, although that's written quite a bit after right. this, kind of in response to this in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. You, but you see that, you know, they were certainly Aristotelian in their view of government at the time. So they certainly believe that there are limits on any governmental power. Right. They're just not built into the system. Exactly. Mm-hmm. People are just expected to kind of be nice. You know, <laughs> you, you get that a lot of days from people nowadays. I mean, they, they say, you know, our government won't work unless you get moral, ethical people in government. That's the ultimate safeguard. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that's blatantly misunderstanding our founders' vision for government. People are fallible. People are flawed. You need a system that doesn't just say, well, the limits will be whatever common decency says the limits are. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, th- okay. <laughs> this is a, a very good example of that um, that idea coming up short <laughs> because... Yeah. So, so okay, so we've got a problem where Tiberius Gracchus is not acting like a gentleman. He's mm-hmm. abusing his lawful power. People can't really do anything about it because everybody agrees he has veto power. So what's the solution to him acting in an ungentlemanly fashion? Well, you do it back, but there are several steps along that path, <laughs> as we'll see. So you oh. know, having, having deposed this other tribune who is getting in the way, the land reform law does pass. Mm-hmm. So, you know, great. Let's form a land commission, which coincidentally will be 
me, Tiberius Gracchus, my brother, and my father-in-law will make the ones uh, will be the ones to make the decisions. Right. Um, that that sounds very above board. So the law passes, but then the Senate, who sort of again traditionally has the the power of the purse, says we're not going to fund that work. Mm-hmm. So basically, going to grind it to a halt. Because you made everybody mad at him. Yes. So we're going we're gonna to abuse the system <laughs> to do what we want. We know that we have this power. We're yeah. not going to fund it. Now, has that happened before? Have they denied funding to a lawfully passed enactment? That, I don't know. I don't know. In fact, I don't even know if we yeah. have a record to, to justify the, the question. Fair enough. But it's <laughs> funny because, you know, I keep, hopefully, you know, our, our listeners are doing some of the, the mental math themselves here. But you can see where our system built in an expectation that people were going to act like children in this mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's expected that sometimes the House isn't going to fund things that have been validly enacted or that the president's trying to do. And our system works when you try to do that. So that, that's kind of the reason we're talking about this stuff. I'm, I'm going to stop drawing our attention to it now so we can get through the rest yeah. of the story. But <laughs> just keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so the Senate won't fund it. But conveniently, the king of a nearby you know, er, uh, place called Pergamum dies without an heir and sort of reading the writing on the wall about Roman expansion decides better to avoid a war for my people. I'm just going to will my kingdom to Rome. Yep. So that happens and Tiberius says, so, hey. So the, the one guy who hasn't been a child so far. <laughs> sort <laughs> <Basically>. of, yeah. <laughs> but Tiberius says, hey, we've got all this money coming in now. Let's just take that and use it to fund this land, you know, oh assessment gosh. project. Oh, my gosh. Okay. How does that money get to him? Because he doesn't exercise the authority of the Roman well, Empire, does well, he? Well, that, that's exactly no, what the Senate says. <laughs> see, see the, the, so the will says it's uh, the my land, my all my all, all the possessions, my entire kingdom goes to the people of Rome, which is the technical which is the technical <laughs> title of the government of Rome. Okay, so the, the people of Rome is the formal title. You know, I've seen that before, SPQR, yep. Senate and people of Rome. I guess that's used in some contexts. Military context? Or? Yeah, I don't know if it's a full context, but it, it's... Yeah, essentially, he, Tiberius argues, see, it says the people of, see, people of Rome, the people of Rome get to pick, and the Senate says, no, he was using the official title of the, gov- of the government. That means the official, official avenues, i.e. the Senate. Right. Well, and particularly because the Senate acts on behalf of the people. Right. right? Well, they advise the people. So, so, they, yeah. so they figure, even if it goes to the people, that means we're supposed to administer right. it, because we're... Yeah. But then the Tribune is also the Tribune of the people. So here's some confusion from the fact that you created an ad hoc office <laughs> mm-hmm. that represents the same people as a body that you already had representing. Yeah. Yeah. And this right? is why it, this is also why it's a bad idea to have your constitution be unwritten tradition where you can't go back and see, did, did we never have this problem? I know that we don't usually have this problem, which is all that we remember. Right. Well, and that's why, you know, our constitution is very clear. Like, the Senate does not represent the people. Right. Yeah. The House does. The Senate represents the states. The president does not represent either. The president represents the United States. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and as people confuse that all the time, they say, oh, the president represents us. No, he does not. The president represents the United States. And that's an important distinction, because when things like this happen, you have to know who's in power. There was a really stupid Star Wars show that Disney released called, I think, Tales of the Jedi, where somebody makes the claim that the Jedi represent the people, and that was absurd because we know the Senate represents the people in the Star Wars Old Republic, right? The Jedi don't do that. Anyway. <laughs> so well, They're not being careful about their writing. They're pretty good in Andor, but the other ones, they're not very right. good. But uh, in the midst of all this, though, Tiberius, his term, which is one year, we talked about that, almost every Roman office, if not literally all of them, lasts for one year. I think all but so, one, yeah. Yeah. His term is up. But this business is still obviously unfinished, and he decides, hey, you know what? I need to see this through. I'll stand for re-election, which 
there's some dispute in the sources that I've seen about whether that was actually explicitly illegal and he was just ignoring the law mm-hmm. or if it was another one of these just elements of the tradition right. that you're not supposed to do this. E- yeah, either way, the established is going to be furious. Right. And if there's one thing the Romans hate throughout their history, it's um, the idea of a king. Specifically, they have less of a problem with one man yeah. being in charge. But if you do anything that looks royal, they really don't like it. Right. And so they like terms. Terms are good. Yeah. <laughs> and, and You know, togas are good. <laughs> yeah. But so this looks to them, hey, this guy, he's got all the people on his side, basically, because he's promising them everything. He doesn't seem to care about our traditional ways, and he's trying to consolidate power into his hands. What do you do with a guy like that? Mm-hmm. Well, as it turns out, you murder him. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and like that's we're laughing because it's absurd, mm-hmm. and yeah. because obviously the, the backlash from this is going to be horrendous. But let's look for two seconds. What's the alternative? Mm-hmm. If, you, if you have somebody who's really a fly in the ointment, who's abusing your systems, who's making it impossible to get things done, does their system have any built-in safeguards for that? Wait for him to get out of not office really. and then try to change change the laws. Ho- That's about it. And hope he's not popular. Yeah, right? hope, yeah. Get mm-hmm. him out of uh, wait till he's out of office and hope he's not popular enough to get it, get back in. Right, yeah. because if he is popular enough, he'll be gone for a year and then it's all coming back. Right. right. Yep. So, first Gracchus gets murdered. We have mm-hmm. to go real quick on his brother Gaius, who about a decade later has some very similar things happen to him. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they will also murder Gaius Gracchus, but this is the real innovation. Before they do it, the Senate passes a, a motion that they call Senatus Consultum Ultimum, mm-hmm. the final decree of the Senate, which basically means martial law. Yeah. So. That's, he, and that is the solution, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, within the system, other than murdering people, that's all you can do. Yeah. yeah. And so he, and this time, a lot of his followers as well end up being killed, whether just in the streets or later after trials for sedition, treason, or whatever. Yeah. But one way or another, lots of bloodshed to end the, the problem. But... Yeah. Now, now and, to and, be fair to the, to the Senate, uh, neither of them were, like, no one just walked up and said, I'm going to assassinate you and then stabbed him. Uh, both of them were, f- yeah. were murdered, <laughs> were murdered in, during riots, uh, so it's a little bit ambiguous, mm-hmm. while trying to get to the poll. So it was actually uh, riots at poll, at poll uh, yeah. locations that killed both of them. Debatably, riots that they had caused. Yeah, right. right. But there, there's, yeah. there's more ambiguity yeah. than we're saying, but it's pretty, I think no one disputes that they were murdered one way or the other. Yeah. yeah. And I just want to be clear for our audience. You know, what, what's, what you should be noticing when we've talked about is that the instability in the system, these riots we just referenced, everybody's anger to the point of murdering people and then eventually mm-hmm. declaring martial law. None of that was caused by the issue of land reform. Right. right. They weren't just so mad about land reform that they were going to do all this stuff. They were mad that somebody had done something that destabilized their system. Right. Yeah. By going against established forms and ways of doing things. And even in most circumstances, we kind of teased this out earlier, not really even going against the system as such, but actually exposing vulnerabilities in the system. Right. right. Using yeah. the system to show why it's not a great system, yes. which is actually even more of a threat. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Because you can't have that long term. Yeah. It, it was more violating what the system was perceived to be. And that's... As you said, that's arguably even more dangerous because it's, you know, showing that you've you've built a house of cards, basically. Right. Yeah. 
Okay, so anything else you want to say about Rome before we move on? No, other than that, that this essentially exposed the, the contrast between uh, tradition and law, because both and both sides showed that in order to protect what they what they cared about, they would uh, violate traditions. Because also the Gracchi, people forget about this, the Gracchi were most politically connected family like in Rome's history. They had mm-hmm. uh, they had family ties one way or the other to pretty much any famous Roman you've ever heard of that lived before them. Mm-hmm. They were one of the wel- wealthiest families, and they decided to go reform. And the uh, government said, "We don't care that we're tied to, to you by marriage, by this, by that. We're going to get rid of you because you, you're taking away the traditions we care about. So we're going to ignore the traditions that would help you." So both sides didn't care about tradition. Yeah. Only one side used a lot of their advantage, and that kind of opened the door to all the problems that would come after the Gracchi. Is people saw, "Oh, the, the cat's out of the bag. I can do that too." Yeah. Yeah. I guess, Alex, in your opinion, mm-hmm. Tiberius Gracchus, did he act unlawfully at any point? Uh, Tiberius, I think, no. I think that his brother. I mean, we know his brother oh, yeah, okay. did. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, did, we yeah, didn't have time for that. I mean, that's that kind of why we glossed story, over but, that one a little right. more because <laughs> that's. I, I think it's a less. Um, well, I mean, it shows the way in which things degenerate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and we're trying to just get to the point at which things began to degenerate. And I think that's here because it's. You know, people don't like it when you mix things up too much. We've got strong laws here. Uh, we think that uh, our institutions prevent a lot of these different kinds of things, and we will proudly defend those institutions. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alex. Uh, come back anytime, especially when we talk about Rome. You know more about it than <laughs> sure. we do. Sure, sounds so. fun. Okay. Yeah, uh, <laughs> All right. Next up, we're just going to have a brief discussion, uh, partly because, you know, as it stands right now, this is still just a petition for cert that's been filed with the Supreme Court. They haven't decided... Yeah, that's certiorari. Remember, they're asking the Supreme Court to hear the case. Yeah, so. which by the time this podcast comes out, the court will have ruled on that petition, you know, decided whether or not they're going to hear the case. We think more likely than not they won't. We can maybe talk about that in a minute, but... Or at least they shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but petition for cert is in. Usually we show you ones where we think they should take up the case. This time we're doing one where they shouldn't. <laughs> but the name of the case I, is... Day v. Garland, and it pertains to some immigration issues, and specifically, I think they showing Merrick Garland or some some other Garland. It, it is Merrick Garland. Yep. So good. You know, good. we've got a lawsuit against him too. It's <laughs> that guy should get sued more often. Yeah, that guy's um, really bad. <laughs> he's one of those ones that'll destabilize our system. I mean, really, he's the degree to which the Department of Justice is abusing the rule of law in this country. I mean, don't get me started. Yeah, I, I won't, and I didn't. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll remind you, you, you did this on your own. But anyway, basically, I wanted to, to talk about this because I think we've used the phrase before, at least you have, moral turpitude, or you know, specifically crimes involving moral turpitude. And this case sort of centers around that issue. Yeah. So long story short, this guy, Everton Day, is an immigrant. He's from Jamaica, but he has a green card because he married an American a little over a decade ago. And he has been recommended for deportation. I think he may, in fact, have been deported at this point. But basically because he he had a series of drug convictions. And those were regarded as crimes of moral turpitude. And, you know, U.S. law on immigration allows for deportation of permanent residence, which he is, in certain circumstances, basically having to do with multiple convictions for crimes like that. Yeah. So. Yep. And what he's arguing here is that the phrase crime of moral turpitude is unconstitutionally vague. Now, I think we've talked before about 
what's called constitutional vagueness. Is that something we've discussed before, David, or do you want to review that real quick? I think we may have, but it's probably worth doing a quick refresher. Okay, so unlike Rome, we've got a written constitution, right? I mean, it's, it's actually, it's there in writing. You can visit it in the National Archives. You can see what it says. Yeah. That's a, a pretty big advantage over the yeah and part of <laughs> the Roman and, and that constitution has certain due process requirements right like it says you can't be deprived of the due process of the law yeah so if we've got a written constitution then if we know that constitution guarantees due process we can make certain inferences from that right which is that you know our laws have to be comprehensible our laws have to be something that you could understand if they're not something you understand they violate the constitution because they are what is called unconstitutionally vague that's sort of the idea of constitutional vagueness did i explain that well yeah so you know I, i think the idea being a law that isn't really as you said comprehensible where you can't read it understand what it means and then know what kind of things you should or shouldn't do then that's innately depriving you of due process of law because due process entails that you understand and that it can be understood. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, part of what the law requires is the law give people fair notice of its requirements. Yeah. The vagueness doctrine prevents basically arbitrary enforcement, uh, arbitrary prosecution, mm-hmm. makes the government subject to certain structural limits. So I, I think it is it's definitely something that is required by the Constitution, even though you don't get anything in the Constitution saying laws can't be vague. I think that's a necessary inference in the fact that we have a written Constitution. Yeah. You know, and you, you can envision a scenario in which the, you know, Congress passes a law, it's like no bad guys, right? And it's like being a bad guy is going to be against the law from now on. Well. Right. How do you possibly... Is that what crimes of moral turpitude does? <laughs> That's the question, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the, to, to, to bring it back, yeah, he, the argument is basically nobody can possibly know what moral turpitude is. That's so so vague. What are we doing here? You need to actually statutorily define that. That's basically what the, the petitioner is arguing. Yeah. That's and, and, you know, considered in a vacuum, if you just look at what our Constitution says and you look at the phrase crime of moral turpitude, that might hold some water, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's a reason that it doesn't, and that reason basically owes to the common law heritage in which the Constitution was originally written. Let me read this section from William Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England. William Blackstone says, Those rights, then, which God and nature have established, and are therefore called natural rights, such as life and liberty, need not the aid of human laws to be more effectually invested in every man than they are. Neither do they receive any additional strength when declared by the municipal laws to be inviolable. On the contrary, no human legislature has the power to abridge or destroy them unless the owner shall himself commit some act that amounts to forfeiture. Neither do divine or natural duties, such as, for instance, the worship of God, the maintenance of children, and the like, receive any stronger sanction from also being declared to be duties by the law of the land. The case is the same as to crimes and misdemeanors that are forbidden by superior laws and therefore styled mala en se, or crimes in themselves, such as murder, theft, and perjury, which contract no additional turpitude from being declared unlawful by the inferior legislature. For that legislature in all these cases acts only as was before observed in subordination to the great lawgiver, transcribing and publishing his precepts, so that upon the whole the declaratory part of the municipal law has no force or operation at all with regard to actions that are naturally and intrinsically right or wrong. 
We talked about this earlier in reference to Rome, right? We said that that it's a legislative tyranny, but there's sort of a, you know, you got to do some basic decency things on top of that. Yeah. Cicero ends up codifying that a bit more, develops really a, sort of a fully developed natural law philosophy. That natural law philosophy is codified and developed over the next several millennia and does find its way into our Constitution, right? Well, you tell me. It does. <laughs> <laughs> and this is as expressed by Blackstone, as we've mentioned before, sort of the Founder's Bible when it comes to what the state of the law was at the time that our nation was formed. So what do we do when we create a constitution? Well, we actually codify and enshrine certain legal rights, so, which recognize, in turn, that some of those rights, yes, are uh, natural, unalienable rights, but that there are others in addition to that which don't need codification, mm -hmm. to use Blackstone's language. We already know which crimes are crimes of moral turpitude. It doesn't have to say so in any book of laws. If it's something that seems really bad based on our history and tradition and the laws of God and the laws of nature, that's something that would be considered a crime of moral turpitude. Mm -hmm. Does that seem too vague to you, David? I could see someone arguing that it is, but you know, that's, I think, coming from a perspective that the sort of baseline idea of law is statutory law. So it has to be spelled out. It has to be legislation to you know, sort of confirm it. I think that's a lot of people's natural inclination nowadays. So I see where people are coming from with that. I don't think it's correct. Um, but, you know, I, I, sort of, I think I, I understand the angle. Can't say I agree with it. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. It's the reason I think this is an important point is because as we've mentioned before, our constitution exists within a context. Right. It exists within a legal superstructure in which it is to be understood and interpreted. Crime of moral turpitude is not a new term. That's a term that's been around for a long, long time. You just saw William Blackstone using it. Yeah. There are certain crimes that are accepted to be a part of that. Now, I don't think ordinary drug possession is a crime of moral turpitude. I don't know what this guy did. The, uh, uh, do you happen to know what he did? Yeah, so ultimately it came down to possession with intent to distribute. And evidently the, the jurisprudence that they were relying on held that intent to distribute always has what's called mens rea, or evil mind, basically. You know, So you, you always have malicious intent when there's intent to distribute, according to the See, I would probably take issue with the lower court's ruling that that was a crime of moral turpitude more than I would take issue with the standard. Yeah, I think... I, I tend to agree. You know, in, I, I'm not sure exactly what... I don't think there is any natural duty, you know, implied by the structure of creation and its God uh, <laughs> or the, the history and traditions of the English and American people that would imply that distributing marijuana is inherently wrong. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly a trickier one, but I, I believe that the lower court said, we've got strong precedent on this and we're not going to upset the apple cart, basically. All right. Seems like they're taking their case further than they need to. You don't need to overturn the whole crime of moral turpitude thing. <laughs> Just get this one declared not to be one. And, and usually moral turpitude is, well, it's certain particularly heinous crimes. So things like murder, assault, you know, burglary, mayhem, arson, stuff of that nature. <laughs> yeah, which and, and then and mayhem, also hold on, crimes hold on one sec. Have we defined mayhem on the show before? Because I think that, that may otherwise strike people as odd in that list. But, uh, oh, uh, no, mayhem is a malice crime. It's, it's the dismemberment 
or <laughs> it's cutting people's arms and legs off. Yeah, is mayhem. So you know, pe- people talk maliciously about, doing so. Yeah, people talk about oh, it was mayhem quite a lot, and I, I think very few people know what that actually historically means. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Sorry, I take that for granted sometimes. Uh, but it's, it's crimes like that. So certain very severe, egregious crimes, and then also crimes that implicate some aspect of uh, honesty. So things like fraud are always going to be considered crimes of moral turpitude. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, falsification of documents, forgery, things like that involving dishonesty are almost always going to be there. Yeah. I, b- I believe one of the things they were looking at in the petition was the precedent from a case, Jordan v. DeGeorge, which I, I think was a 1951 case, but it, it dealt with fraud. And the, the upshot of that case was that fraud was always going to be treated as a crime of moral turpitude. Was this guy fraudulently selling drugs? What was he charged with? No. So... It, Day himself, the, the petitioner here, was, as, as far as I read, you know, the, the charge had to do with just bringing marijuana into the state of Virginia, evidently with intent to distribute. So why did it matter if fraud was a crime of moral turpitude? The, because the, the DeGeorge case, the Jordan v. DeGeorge case, also revolved around unconstitutional vagueness but specifically with the issue of, of uh, fraud and, and... Oh, I see. So they're saying now that it's been applied in this other instance, maybe it is unconstitutionally vague. No, I would just say they misapplied it yeah. at, at worst. You know, it's not... I don't think the vagueness is an issue at all because it's... We have a metric by which we can determine whether or not distribution or, or intent to distribute drugs is a crime of moral turpitude. I don't know enough about that offhand to be able to tell you if it is. You could easily look at the history of English and American law and determine that. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think we, we seem to have basically the same view here that this is the wrong way to pursue this case. Yeah. What law firm brought this? That I don't know. <laughs> I didn't make a note of that. Not us. One of the bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> Implying that that's um, all of the other ones or... <laughs> no, 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 no. Lots of the other ones are really good. I work with lots of the other ones. I have to say that. <laughs> yeah. But but no, seriously, there are other good ones. Um, <laughs> Let's see. It's, it's um, Eugene R. Feidel from Yale School of Law, Supreme Court Clinic. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah, this is somebody who's not terribly familiar with the... Prob- with probably originalism, frankly. Yeah. Uh, because they're ignoring the common law history of our Constitution. So... I yeah. think it's very plain in Blackstone. Crime of moral turpitude is absolutely a constitutional category. You can use it. Yeah, and I, I think we may have mentioned this before, but there, you know, some some organizations, and it sounds like this may be one of them that sort of really specialize in Supreme Court issues, tend to take real big swings to try to you know fix what they perceive to be pet issues. Um, and I, I wonder if this may be you know one of their axes to grind. Is this? But the the fact that our constitution is based on a common law heritage. What I mean, vagueness is what I was getting at. But, <laughs> but. <laughs> well, I think unconstitutional vagueness is actually a real problem with a lot of our laws. Yeah. I, I don't think the ones that are rooted in common law heritage are the ones that have that issue. Right. You know, there's lots of rulings on this stuff. There have been thousands of rulings over the centuries about what constitutes crime and moral turpitude. It's very easy to look at that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, it takes a while because you have to do legal research on it. That's why I don't know offhand. I don't know every one of those thousand cases. Right. Uh, but I don't think that's the right target. I think usually written laws are a better target for unconstitutional vagueness when it's very unclear what kind of conduct they intend to prohibit or require. Yeah. Well, anyway, so as we mentioned, you know, between us recording this episode, because, you know, the, the 
The Supreme Court is due to decide whether they'll hear this case or not between now and when this episode will be released. So who knows by then they may have already thrown it out. They may have accepted it, but you know, we'll see, I guess. <laughs> but anyway. All right. Gather around boys and girls, young and old, everybody interested in American law, law throughout the ages, law throughout the world. It's once again, time for Captain Kangaroo Court. Okay. Well, we are once again pushing our time limits. So I will once again, try to make this pretty quick. I've got another pair of themed stories for you, but this time we're going a bit of a different direction. We're going to be talking about defendants that are not actually animate persons. So, so there's an ancient Greek writer named Pausanias who basically writes travel stories. So all the places he's going, interesting things he's seen. He tells one story about a statue of an Olympic athlete named Theagenes who was, you know, evidently had an athletic rival who was bearing a grudge even after he was dead. So he liked to go out at night and beat up the statue. Don't know why. Of the dead guy? Yep. Could, you know, couldn't, couldn't tell beat you up why. A dead guy. It's hard to beat up a statue. Usually it's going to beat you up, you know. It's, <laughs> you know well, it's your fists. and in fact, that's what happened, at least according to Pausanias. I, I, I'm pretty sure this story never actually happened. But, you know, who knows. But you can't be sure. Yeah. <laughs> One night, evidently, he... Hits it so hard that eventually the statue breaks and falls on him, and he dies. And his sons, being very upset about this, decide they want to sue the statue. They sue the estate of the guy that... Nope, they, oh, they the just statue. sue the okay. statue. <laughs> does the statue have assets? I, I don't think it does, but this may be one of those circumstances where it was sort of a, you know, a hero cult type thing. So maybe they, the, the argument here is the statue has some kind of life in it, something, you know, magical, whatever. But allegedly, they put the statue on trial, the city convicts the, the statue of murder, and they decide to throw it into the ocean. How is that murder? <laughs> it wasn't even acting. Well, that's where I think maybe they thought, well, his spirit made the statue fall over or something. Who knows? <laughs> I, he probably didn't say much in his defense. I, I doubt guess. that he did, yeah. I doubt he was able to hire competent counsel. Maybe it was a default judgment, since well, it was a civil suit. You know, he never responded to the complaint. Yeah. Well, <laughs> eventually... The oracle comes to his defense and basically says to the city, you know, the, you, you're having all this famine is because you threw that statue into the ocean, so you better go fish it out. And that's allegedly what happens. All right, then. Yeah. So that's... That's pretty weird. That's that's our first inanimate defense. So was it a, you said he was convicted of murder. Was it a civil suit or was he criminally prosecuted? You know, I don't know... Very clearly, I'm guessing that this Pausanias guy probably didn't either. I don't think he had great working knowledge of the law. At any rate, the, the right. story he tells is very weird, and uh, I'm not sure what to make of it other than that. I, think. I like to imagine they just got a default judgment against him. <laughs> you know, they, 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 served a, they served a complaint on this statue, just kind of left it there on the ground. <laughs> and then went back to judge. And then a month later, when he hadn't responded, they filed for a default judgment. <laughs> yeah, that, that may have been a better strategy than, um, than what they actually did. But anyway, in our, our second story, this one I think you probably have heard of before, you, you specifically. But Oh, yeah, yeah. This <laughs> one's well known. Yeah. <laughs> the Cadaver Synod, it's called, where the Pope put the last Pope on trial after he was dead. Um, so this is happening uh, back in the ninth century Pope Stephen the sixth comes into office having you know been involved in a very contentious dispute with his predecessor before that all kinds of politics involved um, we'll spare you the details but 
he wants to sort of undo all the things that the previous pope Formosus had done. One of the ways you can do that is by, you know, obtaining a legal judgment that he had never legitimately been the pope. So they dig up his body, they stick it in a chair, and they accuse it of having usurped the papal office. Lo and behold, the, the body doesn't really answer much in return. What do you say in your defense? <laughs> Just like that statue, he says nothing. Yeah. Um, as This I learned when I was reading about this. I like that they're, they're that opposed to hearing him in absentia. <laughs> they have to dig up his body. You know, it's, we're going to actually observe the proper formalities. We're not going to have somebody heard in absentia, but we're going to exhume his body to hear it. That's that's just nuts yeah. to me. Yeah. Well, and you know, interestingly, I didn't know this before prepping for this show. The Pope actually did appoint someone to speak on his behalf. I'm not sure that guy felt like it was in his best interest to do a very good job of it. So he probably uh-huh. did. Yeah, his client's probably not going to get <laughs> mad at him if he doesn't. So. Um, so, you know, long story short, they find him guilty. This was another detail I didn't know until very recently. But, you know, I'd heard this story before. They end up throwing his body into the Tiber River. But this part I had not heard before. They actually cut off the fingers of the corpse that are used in the gesture of blessing. You know, the thumb and the first two fingers as, you know, part of the, the symbolism here. <laughs> you know, that he, he was never actually the Pope, so he could never actually have conveyed a blessing on somebody. So, wow, mm-hmm. pretty grisly. So, if you look at the list of the popes now, is he not on it? That's a good question. You know, there are. Or they, they cons- did, I don't know. Do canon lawyers consider this valid precedent or not? That's an excellent question. I don't know that. I do know that the new pope, Pope Stephen, he doesn't last very long either, and he ends up being executed as well. So, you know, the, there are disputed accounts of the the sort of. You know the the proper the sequence of popes, yeah. So that that would seem to be a real problem if you if you hold to the view that it's got to be a direct lineal line from Peter. Yeah. Well, and that um, if you could be posthumously removed as pope, then no one's ever truly safe, are they? <laughs> no, no. I guess maybe Peter, but other than that, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that I guess that's it for Captain Kangaroo Court. So thanks, folks. Uh, yeah, that's hopefully you learned a little bit about the weird, wacky, wonderful world of. Dead people and statues <laughs> standing trial. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that it's terribly practical, but it's, it is something. If so, you ever find yeah, yourself again next week. needing to, to sue a statue or a corpse, you can look back don't call on these us. precedents. <laughs> no, don't call us. We're not going to help you with that. That's yeah. not what we do. All right. Well, that'll do it for us, but stick right, around. T- it's now it's time that you've been waiting for for the whole episode. Time yeah. to hear the disclaimers. Exactly. All right. Thanks, folks. Please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. The Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn a bit more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website, www.lexrex.org. L E X R E X.org. As a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues. Today, now that more issues are considered political than ever before, we believe it's especially important to distinguish between the two. Thanks for listening to the Lex Rex Institute podcast, and we'll see you again next week.